0: Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't wanna call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is gonna have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're gonna turn as we do most weeks at this time to new developments in the world of COVID-19. Our guest and your guide, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. I thought we should start with the general state of affairs. Uh, The the hottest new variant, JN.1, is now believed to be uh, the most widely circulating variant in the world, accounting for a majority of active cases. What do we know about its qualities?
1: Well, we have good news and bad news in regards to JN.1. Its predecessor, BA.2.86, turned up about six eight weeks ago, and was very disconcerting because it had a lot of mutations that suggested it would be more transmissible, or potentially more transmissible, um, could cause significant disease. But most importantly, it would evade our immune system that we our immunity we would have from previous infection or vaccines. JN. Point one is a derivative of that, and so it has these same qualities, plus another mutation that suggests even greater possibilities for infectivity. What we're seeing now with, as you pointed out, JN.1 being probably the predominant strain circulating worldwide, and in, including here in the United States, is really consistent with what we've known for the last couple months. That's the bad news. The good news is that the booster or not booster but the updated vaccine that we have this year this fall is very active against this so there was concern that with all those mutations this new updated vaccine wouldn't be very effective but it looks like it's going to be very effective against jn.1 so good news we have a vaccine that works. The bad news in regards to the vaccine is that not enough people are getting it.
0: Got it. And your, your sense of kind of the overall state of affairs, I was going through the CDC dashboard, which is aggregated national data. And a lot of the indicators, test positivity, emergency room visits seem to have leveled off since a, a surge around Thanksgiving time. But hospitalizations is still on a, a significant upward slope. Um, what do you make of where we're at right now? How would you be thinking about gatherings during the holidays?
1: Well, I, th- I think that the what the data is telling us is that we are seeing an effect from Thanksgiving and we are seeing an effect from uh, the beginning of a lot of holiday parties, people getting together. So I think that that's that's what the data is telling us. The question really is how how important is this effect compared to the previous winters? It's not nearly as important from that from that perspective. We're not seeing as many cases. More importantly, we're not seeing as many hospitalizations and deaths. That's the good news there. Disconcerting is the fact that we're still seeing a winter rise in cases. We can call it a surge or a swell or whatever, but we're seeing a rise in cases. And we've been seeing that especially since Thanksgiving. You commented that it looked fairly flat. When we look at the number of cases, the data is so poor in terms of how much testing we're doing that it's hard to get a handle on how many cases there really are. If you look at hospitalizations, that's a more accurate um, bellwether, albeit it lags at least two to four weeks but it's a, it's a more important bellwether because it's much more accurate. And we've seen a steady rise in hospitalizations. Now we're 20, around 23,000 hospitalizations a year, excuse me, a week here in the United States. So that's quite a few. It's not nearly as many as we saw a year ago and certainly not nearly as many as we saw a year before that. So we're doing better, but there's a lot of COVID still going around. Um, A lot of people are still getting sick from COVID and 23,000 hospitalizations a week is nothing to, sorry, sneeze at. Um, So I think that to answer your question in terms of holiday season, I would remain cautious. We've got COVID to deal with and it's increasing. Um, We also have RSV that Uh, not in children right now, it seems to be coming down in children, but in people 60 and over, it's causing a lot of hospitalizations now. And on top of that, we have influenza. So there are three important respiratory viruses that are all rising right now. And um, they're going to peak probably by the end of this month or early January. So if you don't want to get COVID, if you don't want to get flu, if you don't want to get RSV, um, there's a lot you can do about that. And I I would... avail myself of those things.
0: Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. He's here to spend the bulk of his time answering your questions about COVID or uh, we'll throw in questions about flu and RSV at no added cost. The phone number is 1-800-958-9008, 958 9008 for your Corona calls. Um, While people pile onto the phone lines, Dr. Swartzberg, I'll I'll bring up a couple questions from the inbox. Uh, The first comes this morning from Henry, who says he and his husband recently recovered from COVID. They both broke their isolation within the last week. Uh, His husband is 73, Henry is 58, and they are scheduled to visit grandchildren in a week, or this week, I guess who have just been notified they were exposed to COVID. He is wondering if the kids test positive, is it still safe to visit them, given that Henry and his husband have just recovered from
1: COVID? Sure. Well, Henry and his husband have optimal protection right now. Within the first month after having recovered from COVID, you have very good protection against getting reinfected and you have excellent protection if you do get reinfected against getting seriously ill. So they are optimally protected from an immune standpoint. That doesn't translate to that they're, they've got a 100% guarantee they won't get it, but they, they have really the best immunity they could have. So they have to sort of factor that into their calculus in terms of how much risk do they wanna take. Given that uh, both Henry and his husband are healthy Um, granted that the husband is is 73 and puts him in a higher risk just there. Um, That that goes on the other side of the calculus. So I think what I would suggest is that um, I I wouldn't cancel the visit, um, but if it turns out that those kids do come down with COVID, I would use all the same precautions. And that is they've already got good immunity, so the other precautions would be trying to be with the kids outside as opposed to in, that may be problematic given the winter weather, Uh, wearing a very good mask uh, if they are inside and having everybody else wear a very good mask as well if they're inside. So those are the things that they could do and still visit the children. Um, Again, they're at an optimal, they're at their peak in terms of immunity right now and that weighs heavily in terms of allowing them to make a visit. 1-800-958-9008
0: for your Corona Calls questions for Dr. Swartzberg. Next question from the inbox comes from Janice in Berkeley, who writes, I understand the number of rebound cases from treatment with Paxlovid is higher than previously thought. If a Paxlovid course were seven or eight days rather than five days, would that reduce the number of rebound cases? What is the science behind a five day course of treatment?
1: Sure. Well, Janice is right. Um, <clears throat> we are seeing more rebound than we thought um, from COVID in people who took Paxlovid. It's important to remember we also see rebound in people who didn't take Paxlovid, so people can rebound not taking Paxlovid as well. But there, it's pretty clear now that there's much significantly more if you do take Paxlovid. The question is, why is that happening? And in terms of the science, we have not nearly as firm a science as we would like at this point, but I think the consensus is now evolving towards the idea that the five-day course is probably inadequate for a lot of people, not most people. We're talking about maybe one in five having rebound after taking Paxlovid, maybe one in six, but for those one in five and one in six, you certainly don't want to get rebound because you're back in isolation again. So, if the course was 10 days, it's likely we wouldn't see as much rebound. Here's the thinking. You take Paxlovid, it decreases viral replication significantly, but it doesn't eliminate the virus. So it may allow some of the viruses left over after you finish the five-day course to start to multiply again where, at a point where you still don't have optimal immunity. And that's what probably leads to the rebound. By extending the course of Paxlovid, it might obviate that. Now, might's not good enough to make medical decisions on, but we will have data probably within the next six months informing us as to whether a longer course of Paxlovid will reduce that risk or eliminate the risk of rebound. Right now, the recommendation is still five days. Let me
0: flip that around a little bit is there any reason to think a longer course of Paxlovid wouldn't reduce rebound rates? In other words, is there a a plausible mechanism for rebound where increasing the length
1: of treatment wouldn't have an impact? Sure. Um, There's not a plausible mechanism that's being entertained right now. That is a biological explanation for that. But there sure could be that we're just not thinking of. It's one of those unknown unknowns. So I think that um, the hypothesis that I just gave in terms of why we're seeing rebound is a hypothesis, and it's not firmly established in science at this point. So I think we just have to wait until we get more data. It could turn out that there's another explanation for this that we just aren't seeing at this point.
0: Uh, our phone lines are getting close to full. Let's start 3,000 miles away. Ralph is calling from New York. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning. I, uh, when I hear 25,000 beds, and I think back to the 2009 flu pandemic, I, I didn't look up the numbers this morning, but it seems like we called the pandemic for COVID over a year ago, but we're still at higher hospitalization and death rates than we were in the 2009 global pandemic at its peak. Am am I wrong about that? I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you very much.
1: Ralph, that's a really interesting point. Uh, Ralph, that's a very interesting point. I don't have in front of me the number of hospitalizations per week during the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic. We know that um, in terms of the number of cases during the 2009 pandemic with influenza, The numbers were extremely high. Um, Fortunately, during that pandemic, the number of hospitalizations and deaths weren't nearly as high as we would have expected. Excuse me. That's probably because of the virulence, that is how sick this particular pandemic strain made us, was not as bad as it could have been. It was very bad in people who were obese, and it was very bad in pregnant people. Those folks got hospitalized, and tragically, we had a lot of deaths in those populations. But otherwise, it wasn't as bad as we, as we certainly could have seen. But regardless of what the numbers are, I think that you're making a very important point, Ralph. And that is that a pandemic, when is a pandemic over? Um, it's really when we decide it's over. And we made that decision, as you point out, a little less than a year ago. Um, that the pandemic was over and we're gonna go back and live exactly like we were living before the pandemic. Yet, everything is perspective. And if you asked us before, four years ago, before COVID, how would we feel about something, a virus that was causing 23,000 hospitalizations a week here in the United States, we would say, my God, that's a pandemic. But compared to where we were a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, it's uh, certainly so much better that people are willing to say, no, it's not. So it's all in the beholder's mind um, how we see this. I see what I see is frankly not so important whether we call it a pandemic or not, which I think it still is. But what's important is how do we act when there's a virus circulating that is causing an awful lot of hospitalizations and therefore will result in significant deaths.
0: The other uh, awkward part about doing that comparison is there's actually fewer hospital beds in this country than there was in 2009. Uh, this has <laughs> been a long-term trend in the name of efficiency in operating hospitals. Um, the, even though the population of the country has grown, uh, it looks like there's been a drop of about 25,000 in the number of hospital beds in this country.
1: Brian, that's a terribly important point you made. Um, Thank you for making that point. Uh, Not just hospital beds, but um, hospital workers, healthcare workers, and not just healthcare workers, but ventilators um, and all the other equipment we need. We've really um, decided that we don't need resiliency in our healthcare system, and that is a terrible mistake.
0: Right, resiliency and efficiency uh, often run at right angles to each other. All right, let's take our next call from closer to home. Louisa is on the line from Castro Valley. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> I am a, a worried grandmother. Uh, my granddaughter, who is two years old, had had this uh, very awful coughing for almost more than a month now. And uh, two weeks ago, she had a uh, stomach ache and uh, uh, a little bummy thing, but granny knows. And when we talked to the doctor, she, she dismissed it. She said, oh, that's all right. She'll be better in, in weeks and she'll get over it because her cough, she heard the coughing over the telephone. It was a telemedicine. So I don't know, is she, uh, they're scheduling her for a COVID uh, shot on the 30th, and that is two weeks from now, but she's still coughing. Is that safe?
1: Louisa, that's an important question. And it's so hard to know why she's still coughing. Is this one illness that's dragging on a long time? Or is this one illness and then another one that came? Um, That is, was it influenza and then RSV or COVID and then RSV? And it's just impossible to answer that. What is unusual is that she's still coughing after four weeks. There's one bacterium that can cause this. Um, hopefully she's been immunized against it, but it's called pertussis or whooping cough, and that can cause a prolonged cough in kids. From the perspective of waiting two weeks to get her, uh, a couple weeks getting her vaccine, um, I really can't give an opinion about that in that I don't understand why she's still coughing after four weeks, but a prolonged cough after, any of these three viruses I mentioned, flu, RSV, or COVID, is not unusual. People often cough up to four weeks, sometimes six weeks, sometimes even a little bit longer. What I typically would look at and have looked at over the years is with patients is, is the cough getting a little bit better every week? Can you say that, well, I'm still coughing a lot, but I'm a little bit better than I was a week ago? If that's the case, then I think she's going in the right trajectory and probably in a couple of weeks it would be safe to give her the vaccine. On the other hand, if she can't say that she's getting better week after week, then I think she needs to be seen by a doctor, not just by telemedicine. Somebody needs to listen to her lungs and examine her, uh, other parts of her body much more carefully. What, Doctor
0: like is there a problem with getting vaccinated in general when you have symptoms of some kind of upper respiratory infection?
1: No, probably not. Um, we know this with other vaccines that if you have a fever, it's not a good idea to get a vaccine. Um, it, we know that uh, that's the case. But if you if you've got the sniffles um a little bit of a cough um there doesn't appear to be any problem with getting the vaccine
0: all right louise i hope that's helpful let's go to the south bay next mariam is on the line in cupertino good morning mariam
1: good morning and thank you for taking my call um i have my parents are 77 and 90 years old and they are going to to go to um, on a, they going to go on a cruise in mid January and then they go to Iran at the end of the March. They had their last um, COVID vaccine in June, last June. So they are wondering that um, when should they take this um, new vaccine? Um, should they take it before they go to on a cruise or they should wait until they go to Iran, knowing that. You know, both places are too dangerous to go now at this time. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, Miriam, I I would definitely have them get the COVID vaccine now um, or at least two weeks before they go on that cruise so that they're protected. Um, The reason I say now is because there's a lot lot of COVID circulating now, as we've been discussing on the show today. So it's a question of when they want to have their protection but I would get it, I would probably get it now. Um, that will give them good protection on the cruise. We're, we found, there was a paper a couple weeks ago that was very encouraging. It suggested that um, up to six months, people, the vaccine seemed to be working pretty well in terms of protecting against serious disease. That is ER visits, hospitalizations and death up to six months, which was longer than we anticipated. So I w- bottom line, I would get the COVID vaccine now, the updated one. But I would also make sure that they get the RSV vaccine and I would also make sure that they get the influenza vaccine all before they travel. What's more risky, the cruise or being in Iran? Well, I would say I, I don't you know, I don't know what's happening accurately in Iran right now, but assuming that it's much like the rest of the world, it's a risky place there. But I would say that being on a cruise is probably one of the riskiest things people can do in terms of all three of these respiratory viruses,
0: and that's because people are living in relatively close quarters over an extended period of time.
1: And that's right, and the air circulating.
0: Yeah. Um, ha- has the cruise industry undertaken any major reforms or, or health standards in the wake of some of the like headline grabbing outbreaks? There. There was that cruise ship that was docked in the San Francisco Bay at the very beginning of the pandemic. there have been, you know, past incidences of like norovirus outbreaks on on cruise ships.
1: Any change right. there? Well, cru- cruise ships are just like flo- they're floating hotels. And um, the risk is, as you were pointing out, share, a lot of shared air and a lot of shared surfaces that people get their hands on. Norovirus has been very difficult to control, but Frankly, we've been, cruise ships have known about this for a long time, and they've done a lot to uh, obviate norovirus outbreaks. And on the whole, they're doing fairly well with that. But it's very difficult to control because the virus is very hardy, remains on inanimate objects, and you put your hand on that inanimate object and bring your hand to your mouth, uh, it's easy to transmit that virus. In terms of COVID, what we learned from those early and terrible outbreaks on cruise ships Was that it was the ventilation system, and you could be cloistered in your room and not leaving it and still get COVID because the ventilation system would blow that virus throughout the ship. Um, I don't know what cruise lines have done in regards to the ventilation system. I do know that they put an enormous amount of effort into um, making certain that uh, surfaces are as clean as possible. um, That we people can and they think that's really helping with COVID. We don't think that helps a great deal. It does with norovirus. So I, I do know that there's been a lot of effort in that, but I don't know what cruise ships have done in terms of making ventilation safer. Safer.
0: Mm. One is a problem you can solve by throwing staffing at the problem. The other one might require rearranging the guts of a very big and expensive piece of machinery. Um, yeah. Dr. Swartzberg, thank you so much for spending another Monday with us.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. We're going to be off next week because Monday is Christmas. The following week, we'll do Corona Calls on Tuesday, January 2nd, because Monday is New Year's. In any case, if you want to send us a question ahead of time, the best place to do that is still by emailing coronacalls at kpfa.org. If you appreciate the fact that we've kept up Corona calls, even as most of the rest of the media has moved on from COVID, there's three ways you could show that appreciation. First, rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That'll help other people discover it. Second, make a year-end contribution to KPFA, the radio station that pays for the radio show that produces this segment. Just go to kpfa.org, hit the donate button, attach a comment to your donation that says, I appreciate Corona calls final thing you can do, take care of your own health. We do this as a public service because we want you and the people you care about to stay healthy. So think about wearing a good mask if you're going to be in a crowd. If you do catch something, try to keep from spreading it to other people. Stay up to date in your shots and remember that good information is a part of a healthy diet. That's why we're here every week with Corona Calls.